Are you eager to learn more about law? Me too. Hello, my name is Sarah Chayo. Welcome to A Question of Law, a podcast created for law enthusiasts who want to increase their knowledge and deepen their understanding of the law. Our guests, legal professionals chosen from an array of legal professions, will explain to us the fundamental principles of a specific topics in the areas of expertise. Then, they will educate us on new legal developments in their fields in the form of a recent case law or new legislation. They'll share with us their opinions on the ramifications of these latest advances. Finally, we'll talk about their career path and uncover some great insights about their lives and experiences. So, if you want to feed your curiosity, enrich your mind and get inspired. Take a break, sit back and remain tuned in. Globalization has brought numerous positive advancements to developing countries, such as improved infrastructure, new technologies, better living conditions, but it has also permitted multinational corporations to operate in and take advantage of lower standards of labor and environmental protection. As a result, Grave incidents resulting in death, life-changing injuries, pollution and contamination of air, water and lands by leakage of hazardous products have soared. For an array of reasons that we will explore, the victims of these abuses are facing great difficulties in obtaining meaningful remedies for the harm that they have suffered. And despite a global awareness of the flagrant unfairness those cases expose, a binding international instrument to prevent human rights abuse and facilitate compensation has not yet been agreed upon. As a result, it has belonged to each domestic state to pass legislation or develop their own case law to define transnational companies' liability. Our guest, Richard Mirren, who has pioneered the case law development of this field of law in the UK, will explain why and how he has managed to obtain remedy for victims of human rights abuses committed by multinational corporations through their subsidiary based abroad. So let's start. Hello, Richard. Welcome to A Question of Law. I'm deeply honored to have you on this podcast. Since 1991, you've been a partner and have headed the International Department at LIDE, a London-based law firm internationally renowned for its temerity in pursuing cases against powerful defendants such as the UK government and large corporations. Your work at LIDE has been crucial in transforming and reshaping the law on corporate accountability. Your tenacity and relentlessness to push the boundaries of the law have permitted you to set groundbreaking precedents. Your work has contributed to allowing parent companies of multinational organizations domiciled in the UK to potentially be made liable for damages and human rights violations committed by their subsidiaries abroad. By arguing that the parent company may owe a duty of care to their subsidiaries, employees and third parties, you have made justice accessible to tens of thousands of victims 
whose chances for remedies were nearly inexistent or very limited. These developments have paved the way for litigation against corporations such as Rio Tinto, KPLC, Shell, Thor, Vedenta and others in the UK. You have published numerous articles on the subject and have received the Human Rights Lawyer of the Year Award. Your knowledge and expertise are sought after internationally and you regularly share them on UN and European forums, as well as with the UK Parliament. As a result, I'm incredibly humbled to welcome you here to talk about corporate liability and access to remedies. So, to start with, may I ask you to give us some examples of cases where corporate's activity has resulted in catastrophic damages for local communities? Well, thank you, Sarah, for inviting me. I'm delighted to participate in this podcast. And in answer to your question, unfortunately, recent history is replete with examples of harm caused by multinationals in developing countries. But I'll give you three examples mm -hmm. which have arisen in cases that I have run over the years. The first is concerning a company called Cape PLC, which was one of the world's largest asbestos mining companies based in England, orchestrated its business from England. And in South Africa, it operated through its subsidiary companies, the world's largest blue asbestos mine and the world's largest brown asbestos mine. And these mining operations, which were conducted in an unsafe and hazardous manner, caused widespread asbestos-related disease among workers on the mines and in residents living close to the mines. And in addition, decimation of the local environment. Now, this, these were operations that were largely being conducted at a time when the health risks associated with asbestos were well known, the serious health risks. Mm -hmm. uh, we acted for 7,500 asbestos miners, and according to our records, around 6% of them were employed under the age of seven mm -hmm. on these asbestos mines, unprotected against the risks of dust exposure. We had one category of client who had worked in a role uh, known as Chisa Boys. And these were teenage boys whose job it was to light the fuse of the explosives which uh, would then expose the rock. As soon as they lit the fuse, they then had to run away as fast as they could to avoid getting injured. That gives you a flavour of the attitude that this company had towards its South African workers. And as I said, the devastation in terms of asbestos-related disease and environmental pollution that was caused by this company in South Africa were unparalleled. Mm -hmm. And of course, everyone knows about the serious scale of asbestos-related diseases elsewhere in the world, including in England, where this company imported the asbestos to and made products from it. But in South Africa, unfortunately, it was on an unparalleled scale. So that's one case. Another case which I did really at the beginning of my work in this area was against a company called Thor Chemicals, you mentioned in your introduction. It's a company based in England. It was making mercury-based compounds. And 
In the early 1990s, it was about to be closed by the Health and Safety Executive, which is the regulator in the UK. Mm -hmm. And it then shipped to South Africa, exported to South Africa, lock, stock and barrel, the plant and technology and some of the senior managers. And it carried on operating in South Africa in the same way as it had done in England, only worse. And what would happen each day is that workers would queue up at the factory gate looking for work and would be taken on and given what was called on-the-job training. And so what this company did was when workers' mercury levels reached the maximum, they would then sack them or send them to work in the garden and then replace them with workers who were queuing up for work. So rather than controlling the exposure of mercury uh, in the workplace, what they did was they spread the burden of mercury across the community with the result that large numbers of workers developed mercury poisoning. And some of the workers died, others were seriously poisoned. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, even until recently, toxic waste that this company had imported to South Africa from around the world for so-called reprocessing, thousands of drums of it were still left leaking into the soil in the location in South Africa where this company operated, KwaZulu-Natal. Uh, both these examples, I think, Thor and Kate, that simply would not be tolerated in the UK or Europe or the US. Absolutely. They were able to get away with it in South Africa. Third case is a case that we're presently involved in. Actually, we're working with lawyers in South Africa in a case against Anglo-American South Africa, big mining company, as you know. Mm -hmm. It relates to a, a lead mine in a place called Cabway in Zambia, which was part of the Anglo-American group for around 50 years, from 1925 to 1974, actually. And then it carried on for another 20 years, being operated by a Zambian state-owned company. But the current situation around Cabway is, and this is according to a variety of scientific studies, including by a group commissioned by the World Bank, that hundreds of thousands of people have suffered from elevated lead levels and, and lead poisoning. And these are local residents. So there's not, I'm not talking about workers, I'm talking about villagers who live in close proximity to this mine. And lead is a well-known toxic substance, particularly to young children. Hmm. And so very worryingly, these studies have shown that in small children who ingest lead by, when they put their fingers in their mouths, that a high proportion of small children in that area have developed uh, very worryingly high levels of lead, which causes a range of problems from at one end problems with uh, mental capacity, other developmental issues, and at the other end, extremely high lead levels can even be fatal. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, very serious situation. And it's one of these situations that has been allowed to carry on for decades. And in the, in the meantime, generations of people in those communities have been affected. So those are just three examples. Of them. I could give you many more examples, but I think I hope they highlight the kind of issues that we're confronted with. 
Absolutely. Could you give us an idea of the importance and influence of multinational corporations in developing countries and how this can negatively impact local communities' rights when incidents happen? Well, I think the three examples I've just outlined um, illustrate the, the negative impact, but they also, I think, show how in developing countries, corporations, powerful corporations, are able to operate with minimal or no regulatory oversight and with impunity for harm and damage that is caused. So I think those cases illustrate that. I'll mention another example as well, is that we were involved in litigation for South African gold miners who had contracted silicosis, which was a lung disease, mm-hmm. on the gold mines in South Africa. We were working in that case in connection with South African lawyers, including the South African Legal Resources Centre. So that was litigation in South Africa. But when that litigation started, we were asked by a very senior government official in South Africa not to do those cases. And the reason that was given was that the government was worried that this kind of litigation could destabilize this industry and affect the economy of the industry. This is what they had been told, and that jobs would be lost. And that shows you the influence that these companies have in countries that are desperate for investment and jobs. Mm. Another example is a case I was involved in from about 2009 against a company called Monterico Metals, which was a UK company. It was given a license to develop a copper mine in Peru in a very pristine area at high altitude, close to the border with Ecuador, uh, that uh, was the home to an indigenous community who had a great attachment to the environment and who were greatly opposed to this mine being developed in their area. And I think what is quite well known is that in Peru and other Latin American countries where they do have mineral resources, that there is quite an incentive or an emphasis by government on development of those kinds of concessions at the expense of indigenous communities. Mm. And what happened in this case was that there was um, protest and the company called in a special unit of the police to protect the mine and one person was shot dead. Other people were detained at the mine by the police and mine security in the most inhuman and degrading conditions and some were tortured. And I think that again shows you not just the impact that these operations can have but how influential these companies can be when they bring the possibility of investment and jobs and, and money. Yes, and in some cases, the turnover of these large companies are greater than the GDP of the hosting country. So as you were explaining, it's not surprising due to their economical and financial weight that the government of the hosting country would actually be prepared to turn a blind eye when harm happens or wrong has has been done. But nevertheless, in terms of access 
to justice. The local population would also face substantial hurdles to be able to get compensation in their own legal system. Can you explain to us why? Well, again, I think these cases highlight the difficulties that people have in obtaining justice. If they could, then these companies would be held to account and that would result in an improvement in corporate behaviour. So I think the fact that these things have gone on indicates that there hasn't been proper legal accountability. You can think of it at two levels. Criminal action is, I think, pretty rarely brought uh, against uh, companies for human rights abuses. I mentioned the Thor Chemicals case where workers were poisoned by mercury from the operations of a British company which had um, had done much the same thing in England before uh, mm-hmm. taking uh, the opportunity to carry out, conduct its operations in South Africa. Uh, there, there was an attempt at a prosecution. Uh, you remember I said that um, three workers died and many others were poisoned. Mm-hmm. The company entered into a plea bargain with the prosecution and was fined the equivalent of about 3,000 US dollars. Now, that clearly did not constitute any kind of punishment or deterrent against bad behaviour. So that was a meaningless sanction. Mm. In the Monterico Metals case that I mentioned, where I said that protesters had been detained and tortured on the mine site by the, the police, it was the victims themselves that were prosecuted for a variety of public order offences, uh, but not the police. So uh, it was the opposite of corporate accountability there. It was the victims themselves being harassed and persecuted as a result of their own abuse. Mm. That's the criminal side of things. If one then considers what potential there can be for civil claims, well, this is in, in the host state, in the local courts. Uh, mostly this is just not feasible. South Africa is now, has been quite a transformation for a variety of reasons, which has resulted in victims being able to pursue these types of claims in the South African courts, including using class actions. But I think that is exceptional. In most, most circumstances, if you think about bringing a case against a powerful corporation, you're first of all dealing with a very complicated prospect, both legally, technically and factually. Mm -hmm. Uh, There will be a huge inequality of arms because the company will have an army of the best lawyers at its disposal and virtually unlimited resources. But on the victim side, there would be serious difficulties in obtaining legal representation. To fight a case, uh, the cases of the type that I've described, you have to have legal representation. It's not going to be possible for individual victims to bring that kind of case themselves Mm -hmm. uh, against a powerful company. But how are the legal representatives going to be able to fund a case when uh, you're not going to have public funding available, no legal aid that would enable this kind of case to be brought. In some places, it's not lawful for lawyers to act on a contingency fee basis. But even when it is, that prospect of representing victims in a case like this on a contingency fee basis for lawyers 
who then have to bear not just the risk of not potentially not succeeding, uh, but also the cash flow burden mm -hmm. of uh, running a case like this, which could last for years, is such a deterrent that obtaining effective legal representation is rarely a possibility. Now, sometimes it is when it's possible for local lawyers to work in conjunction with international lawyers uh, to collaborate in that way and possibly to obtain some kind of external funding for a case. But in general, this is just not feasible. Added to which you have problems sometimes of uh, serious delay in the legal process. Mm -hmm. There are some countries where it may take 15 years for a case to get to trial. So there's serious obstacles to justice locally in general. But that's not to say that attempts to develop local legal systems so that cases can be brought locally should not be made. Mm -hmm. That would clearly be the best option if it was achievable. It would be best if people were able to bring cases in their own courts. All I'm saying is that at the present time uh, is not realistic in cases of this type, save in the case of a country like South Africa. Mm -hmm. And what has been done at an international level to highlight and address those issues? Well, there's obviously been a growing recognition over the past couple of decades that the obligations of corporations extend beyond their shareholders to the need to respect the human rights of communities in which they operate and their workforce of a much larger range of stakeholders, in other words. And you know, there have been powerful campaigns by civil society which have ensured that investors are bringing pressure to bear on companies in which they invest to behave responsibly and challenge them if they don't. And I think that is now that kind of expectation mm -hmm. is now widespread often in contracts for loans and guarantees from the likes of the World Bank and the European Bank for Reconstruction Development, they will stipulate that has to comply with uh, human rights standards and environmental standards. So, you know, that is becoming increasingly the norm. And you have principles like the voluntary principles on security and human rights, which companies are expected or companies which are operating in conflict zones where, where public or private security might come into conflict with local communities. They're required to subscribe to those kinds of principles, often as part of their license to operate. And you know, those principles, for example, have been referred to in legal cases. And so they are already beginning to influence, for example, the question of whether the legal duty of care would be owed by companies and what um, the nature of that duty would be. And then, of course, we have the, the UN guiding principles on business rights. Mm -hmm. Pillar two is the corporate duty to respect. Um, and the key part of that is the human rights due diligence duty. Now, that has become a set of principles that large multinationals have been expected to endorse and apply. And it requires them to 
not just to look at uh, one particular entity within their group, but all the entities within the, their group and other businesses with whom they do business and to, to check that within their group and their business associates to investigate whether there may be potentially adverse human rights impacts which may arise from or be contributed to by their activities and um, to track those and to to make a proper assessment of the, the contribution that uh, they might be making to those uh, adverse impacts and what should be done to address them. So that's all important. The difficulty with the UN guiding principles is that they are regarded by business as voluntary mm-hmm. and not legally binding, which is why a lot of NGOs and civil society and lawyers uh, like us feel convinced that legally binding principles are absolutely necessary. You know, there is a concern when companies make bold public statements about their human rights compliance and the policies that they produce and so on, that these might be uh, window dressing or part of a tick box exercise rather than reflecting a genuine commitment and I think you know there are plenty of examples which I think justify that cynicism so legally binding standards are are necessary. Yes the UN guiding principles are not binding but they have been important in fostering in my opinion the narrative with with cooperation on the importance of the respect of humans rights in their operation yes. which until then was only a question of mitigating an incident on the case by case basis and as you mentioned this increased moral and reputational responsibility has developed within the corporate responsibility movement and is now influencing policies and culture in corporations. But obviously for these policies to be enforced or enforceable, I guess more stringent mechanism needs to be put in place. Now, as you explained, remedies are insignificant or even impossible to obtain in the local courts. So in the UK, you have fought to develop the concept of corporate liability in the parents' legal system to try to ensure remedies and hopefully prevent future damages for local communities. So can you explain to us how you've managed to do that? Right. I think the first point I would make is that, in my view, it is very clear that a legal case against a company can be a very powerful deterrent Mm. against human rights abuse. If a company is uh, taken through the legal process, goes a trial, um, has to defend itself, has to, to allow itself to be put under proper legal scrutiny, its documents examined, witnesses cross-examined, and so on, that that is a very powerful salutary lesson for a company. And so civil action, in my view, is a very important tool in prevention of human rights abuses Mm. arising from corporate activities. Now, as I said, in general, there are serious problems with obtaining access to justice locally in the multinational host state. Now, 
if it was possible to get and practically possible to get access to justice locally, then it would be possible to take action against the operating subsidiary company. And legally, that would be a more straightforward case in general. But as I say, that isn't generally possible. And so what I have spent the last more than 25 years now working on are cases against multinational parent companies, mainly in England. Mm -hmm. Now, why against parent companies? Because those are entities over which the English courts will have jurisdiction because they are domiciled in England. The difficulty is the so-called corporate veil, the concept or the principle that a parent company or a shareholder is not legally responsible for the acts and omissions of companies in which it invests. Mm -hmm. And on that basis, a parent company as a shareholder is not liable for the acts and omissions of its subsidiaries. But, of course, to call a parent company just a shareholder, like someone who owns shares in BT, for instance, is not an accurate reflection of the reality of the situation. And so really from the outset, and this was the, the cases um, I think you mentioned at the beginning that uh, I was involved in the case Connolly and Rio Tinto and the Thor Chemicals case and the Cape PLC case, we, uh, we argued for a different approach based on conventional tort law principles of a legal duty of care. And the idea is that a parent company can be assigned with a legal duty of care in certain circumstances, essentially when its role in relation to the subsidiary operations is such that it has a degree of oversight or control or management and knowledge of those operations and an awareness of the risks to present it to workers or local communities uh, such that it should be assigned with a duty of care and if it doesn't take reasonable steps to prevent foreseeable risks of harm then it can be liable for the damage. Now that is then a mechanism for circumventing the corporate veil obstacle based on normal tort law principles and that's where we started off with those three cases that I mentioned from the mid-1990s. Now, there is another problem, though, when, uh, or there was another serious problem back in the 1990s, mm-hmm. which was, uh, even though the English courts had jurisdiction over the parent company, the principle of forum non-convenience could be applied to halt the proceedings, to stay the proceedings on the grounds that the local courts were the more appropriate forum, the more appropriate venue for the case. So back then, in the 1990s, that is a challenge that occupied a lot of the the litigation in these cases. And, of course, the defendants in these cases would argue that the local courts, Namibia and South Africa, were the more appropriate forum because that is where everything had gone wrong that's where the injuries had occurred and the evidence was situated Mm -hmm. we on the other hand would say 
no, no, it was all orchestrated from England. The control was from England. But importantly, there is no means by which these claimants can get access to justice in Namibia or South Africa. And that was the, the Connolly case, was the first case in 1997, where the principle was established that even if the alternative, the local courts were the more appropriate forum, that the forum non-convenience motion could be denied if the claimant could show that substantial justice could not be obtained in the local courts in particular because there was not adequate funding for legal representation or technical experts in the local court. So that was a really important decision in 1997. And it was one that um, was also, that also arose then in the Cape PLC case. Now this is important um, forum non-convenience because the forum dispute in the Cape PLC case went on for more than three years. And during that three-year period, a thousand of our seven and a half thousand clients died. So, you know, that's a really serious impact. In the end, we were successful in the House of Lords, based on the same principle as had been applied three years earlier in 1997 in the Connolly case. But it just shows you how problematic that concept is. I'm mentioning it because I think it's relevant to issues that you might want to talk about uh, a bit later on. Absolutely. But what what happened um, subsequently is that the forum non-convenience issue, I mean, largely disappeared because of a decision of the European Court of Justice in 2005, in which it was held that in the case of a home domiciled company, the courts of the European Union did not have the power to stay proceedings on the grounds of forum non-convenience. As a result of that, subsequent cases didn't really have to deal with forum non-convenience, or not in that way, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that issue uh, has not been a major issue. I mean, we'll have to see what happens in light of the the UK's departure from the European Union and the withdrawal agreement. But then we come to the question of the parent company duty of care. And I mentioned that in those early cases, we'd argued for a tort law-based duty of care. And the courts had essentially indicated that that was an arguable principle, but they hadn't decided that that was so in any case. And um, there was no precedent as such. Some cases were settled, but it wasn't until 2012 in another of our cases um, called Chandler and Cape PLC, the same company, but this time involving a UK worker. That was the first occasion when the UK courts, Court of Appeal, laid down the principle that a parent company duty of care could be owed. And then, of course, winding forwards, we had in 2019 the Vedanta decision of the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And that is where we are. And I think the principle is very well established now that a duty of care can be owed by a parent company which has taken over, intervened, in, controlled or supervised the management of 
the relevant operations of a local subsidiary or where it devises um, defective group-wide policies, for example, on health and safety environment, Mm -hmm. or taken steps to implement such policy. So in those circumstances, they could be a duty. Or where it's held itself out publicly as supervising and controlling its subsidiaries, such as to prevent human rights abuse or environmental damage. So that principle is now very firmly established. It's very much dependent on the facts. So, you know, it does depend on looking into the relationship between the parent and the subsidiary, what decisions were being made, who knew what, and uh, who was who was responsible for what aspect. So that can be quite a detailed investigation, and it does require uh, very effective procedures for, they call it disclosure in England, but in other countries they refer to it as discovery, uh, being able to access internal corporate documents in order to get at what was really going on within the corporate group and whether a parent company's involvement was such as to justify the imposition of a legal duty of care. Now, that's important. In the UK, we have fairly generous disclosure procedures, including now all kinds of procedures for e-disclosure which is obviously very important now. But in other countries, it can be much more limited. In other European countries, for instance, disclosure is very limited, and that makes it difficult to establish what was actually going on within a corporate group. In a developing country, in some countries, they may have, in theory, more generous disclosure procedures, but in order to be able to utilise those, you need effective legal representation and sufficient resources to be able to go through that kind of exercise. So very important if you've got this duty of care, which is so fact-based that you're able to to get to the bottom of uh, what was going on factually. Yeah, absolutely. So the law is very advanced in the UK, and that's in great part thanks to your work. But in other jurisdictions worldwide, it's not necessarily the case. Could you tell us more about what's going on in the US, possibly in Canada and in France, where there is a duty of vigilance law now? Well, I mean, of course, in France, they now have legislated for a diligence duty, which is quite similar to the human rights due diligence principles and not dissimilar from tort law-based duty of care. In the US, cases against multinationals have, in recent years, been largely based on claims under the Alien Tort Statute, which had started off in a very promising way from the uh, late 1990s uh, until the Kiobel decision. Mm -hmm. Uh, And since then, things took a series of steps backwards. And we're now waiting for the Nestle decision of the Supreme Court and hoping that the potential that the alien tort statute had might be restored. But otherwise, my understanding is that forum non-convenience is a very serious obstacle in the US to a claim brought on more conventional tort law principles. They certainly haven't embraced the principle that was established in the Connolly case that um, 
a forum non-convenience stay should be refused if justice can't be done due to the absence of funding for legal representation mm-hmm. locally. That hasn't been endorsed in the US or in Canada for that matter. So, you know, in those countries uh, at the moment, forum non-convenience is more of an obstacle. So the success of the application of the corporate liability principles in the home state seemed to be uneven. What about Canada? Well, there was, of course, a landmark decision of the Canadian Supreme Court in the Nefson case, which um, uh, was quite a remarkable decision directly applying customary international law to corporations. So it seems that a growing number of jurisdictions are trying to deal with a legal vacuum in this particular area of law. And the French law is being used against some corporations in ongoing cases, although to my knowledge, no decision has been handed down in application of the law yet. However, he reflects the need for a global approach. And you've been asked to comment on the drafting of a new treaty many times. So could you tell us about the creation of an international treaty and what it should contain? I think internationally binding treaty is essential if we want the potential for multinationals to be held to account around the world. I think that's crucial. It's no good if it's only possible in certain places. As I said, the law has developed in the UK to an extent which makes it possible, but to have an internationally binding treaty uh, would potentially be an improvement on that as well, because it would mean that, I'm assuming that a, a duty would be imposed automatically, and the question would then be what the nature of the duty was and whether it had been complied with. And as I've said, the laws in other countries haven't developed to the same degree. And so, especially in those other countries, having being able to utilise an internationally binding treaty would be a significant step forward. So there's not just the question of having a, a duty, a legal duty imposed on the parent company. There would have to be more to it than that. There would have to be provisions, for instance, for access, proper access to information so that victims were able to ascertain what had been known by a company, what decisions had been made and by which entities. You'd have to have procedures for collective or class actions so that um, the difficulty of bringing a large number of individual small claims could be uh, overcome. There have to be procedures um, which I think would incentivize lawyers to represent victims. That would mean being able to recover legal costs and, and so on. So there's a whole variety of things that would need to be included in uh, such a treaty. And I think, you know, those are, there have been various drafts produced at the UN level which cover many of those aspects. Forum non-convenience is a doctrine which should be barred by, by this treaty and instead it should be possible Uh, where justice cannot be obtained in local courts for victims to be able to bring claims in a place where justice can be obtained. Mm -hmm. And what about the burden of proof? That's an important point. It has been suggested, including by me, that there should be a reversal of the burden of proof. And the point about this is, is that, as I said, the difficulty in being able to ascertain what was going on within a company without 
effective access to information. So an alternative where if a company's not going to be required to disclose that kind of documentation is to say, well, if you're not going to disclose that documentation, then the onus is on you, the company, to prove that you didn't have responsibility for managing or supervising, etc., these local operations. So I think that would be a solution. That would then put the onus on the company to produce the documents which showed, um, which exonerated it, if there are such documents. So I think that would be an important step forward too. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for all this information. I think you've provided us with a very clear and comprehensive explanation of the development of corporate accountability, the hurdles that still remain and what it would take to overcome them. This podcast has been incredibly informative. So thank you very much for your time. However, I will not let you go for long since you will be back on the next episode of The Question of Law to talk about your career, your experience and yourself. So I look forward to speaking with you again. Thanks, Sarah. The information contained on this episode is not to be interpreted as legal advice, but is provided for informative purpose only. Formal legal advice should be sought for any specific case. Our guests are presenting their personal opinions in the context of an informal conversation and do not speak on behalf of their employers, partners, contractors or clients. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of A Question of Law. Your engagement with the show is at the heart of its success. The show has already received a fantastic amount of support and I'm really thankful for this. But the challenge is to keep you, the audience, engaged and fascinated. So if you have appreciated the show, please let me know by tuning in for the next one, rating and sharing the episodes and leaving comments. So until the next question of law, keep well.